0: But Keeping Your Joy, The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner, this is part 19. And if there's ever a text that most directly relates to that title, Keeping Your Joy, it would surely be this one. We're going to be studying Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. The title for this teaching is, How Great Joy Shuts Out Smaller Fears. So if you have your Bible here or at home, Philippians 4, 4 to 7, either start it up or open it up. Let me read. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's just pray. We recognize if there's anything we need in these times, it's having our hearts guarded, our hearts and minds guarded. In Christ Jesus. Take these verses on joy, prayer, and the guarding of our minds and hearts. Let your spirit apply truth to all of our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse four is such a tantalizing sentence. The way it's put together, it just kind of makes you want to probe its meaning. Here's why. If one is already In circumstances that are incredibly grand, you wouldn't think he has to be told to rejoice. I mean, surely no one has to be told to rejoice if he or she has just struck oil or won a million dollars or been healed of incurable cancer. Joy just bubbles up. Joy just comes in those kinds of circumstances. It's reflexive. It just washes over us. On the other hand, if one is experiencing desperate times, if a person is bound up in circumstances that cry out with deep pain and, and irretrievable loss, then, then the command to rejoice, that's a hard command to receive. It's, it's like telling a, a lame man to run the hundred-yard dash, I mean, it's precisely the absence of joy that makes the trial a trial. It's the absence of joy that makes the loss such a burden. In, in these situations, joy just seems to, be, seems to be beyond our reach. I mean, can you really just command emotions like that? And yet they seem to be commanded over and over again in the Scriptures. Twice in the first verse of our text. So in short, here's here's the paradox when you think it through. I mean, the command seems either unnecessary in pleasure or impossible in tragedy. So verse 4 can seem, I don't know, it can seem kind of silly on the surface. Maybe we've gone too quickly, though. If there is any striking feature in today's text, perhaps more evident here maybe than anywhere else in this whole letter. It's it's the connectedness of these four verses. I mean, each thought derives its meaning. In fact, is actually dependent for its meaning on the verses preceding it. So, so what we know for sure is this. The cumulative effect of rejoicing in the Lord, 4-4, and remembering the Lord is at hand, 4-5, and praying with thanksgiving, 4-6. So the effect of those three things is our minds will be guarded with the peace of God, 4-7, rather than riddled, peppered with anxiety and fear, 4-6. And so the way this is all put together, I think it deserves careful study this morning. Point number one. The joy Paul describes in verse 4 is not an emotional condition, but a persistent satisfaction in the Lord. It's made clear by the kinds of words Paul chooses. You see it in that that fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to change colors. I don't like that one. Rejoice in the Lord. And then always, and again, I will say, rejoice. So if we were doing like a CSI, a crime scene investigation here, this is, in this verse, we draw chalk lines around those two segments, in the Lord and always. I mean, that word always, it tells me Paul isn't thinking of joy the way I was picturing it in my introduction, tying it just to circumstances. In the Lord means, Paul was thinking of a a joy dependent on my circumstances of either deep pleasure or deep pain. Not there, but in the Lord. And then that word always, that isn't pinned to some kind of emotional state or emotional condition. So it's rooted in the Lord and it's exercised always. That second phrase, it clears some other things up. We're to rejoice not in our circumstances, verse 4, but in the Lord's. And so the joy is somehow above. Above earthly sources to give and above earthly trials to remove. It, It seems to come from outside of our circumstances, outside of ourselves. So it's something outsourced in Christ. It's In him, verse 4, in some some living, connected way, the joy is exercised always, in all circumstances, because it's rooted in, connected to the Lord in our minds and in our hearts. So there, that's, that's all Paul says at this point. But it does tell us something really important about the Christian life. I mean, Paul identifies the Christian as a person who has found his or her um, greatest and deepest joy in Jesus Christ. So, so many things are important, but none are as important as Christ. So as we study these words, as you hear them in this sanctuary or in your family room or whoever you're watching this as it's streamed, if if you're a Christian at all, this is where Paul wants to plant your heart, in Christ. You you don't uh, apprehend the Christian life accurately or your place in Christ accurately. You're not thinking about it right If if there is anything else that is just as important to you. So, you and I misrepresent the the beauty and the importance of Christ to the world if anything else is ever perceived to be as great and as meaningful and as important and as joy producing as Christ. Christians rejoice in the Lord. And as we'll see in a minute, that is meant to be seen and observed. This isn't a new idea with Paul. Paul's biblical sort of logic of joy, it's always been the stance, it's always been the position of the one who knows God. I was looking at these familiar words from the prophet Habakkuk toward the close of, of that book. The prophet says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food and the flock be cut off from the fold. And he piles things up, doesn't he? And there be no herd in the stall. There's nothing good in any of those verses yet. Yet I will rejoice. Here it is the same phrase. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So Paul is, Paul is just repeating what has always been the telltale sign of a renewed heart. Once you grab onto this, once you grab onto this key thought, the theme of our Philippians text starts to just unfold layer upon layer. I mean, everything else relates to the foundational idea, which Paul repeats twice in that fourth verse for added emphasis. And the reason for Paul's emphasis is you and I live in a culture, the spirit of this age gears everything about my life and yours, gears its approach to to shift the center of joy in our lives. That's what advertisers do. They shift the center of joy. They shift the center of satisfaction. They shift the center of security. That's why Paul says, that's why Paul says we have to maintain the center core of joy in our lives, and we have to do it always, he says in verse 4. You can never stop insisting on this in your life. Let me try and explain how this works. Because it has everything to do. This is not just academic. This has everything to do with. Verse 7. How the Lord is going to guard your heart and mind in this world. That's what we're after. The Lord wants to guard our hearts and minds. How? How does that happen? Well, every day this week. Every day this week. Is going to test your joy in the Lord. It is not something that might happen to you. It is something that will. It absolutely will happen to you this week. It will start to happen as soon as you leave this sanctuary or turn off that live stream in your family room. There are only two types of events in all of our lives. Either good pleasure-producing events will happen or bad Sorrow-producing events will happen. That's it. Every event comes from a point somewhere along the spectrum between those two ends. And here's the thing. Both those events can do something to your soul. Pleasure-filled events, sorrow-filled events. I want to talk about that just for a second. Good events. Let's talk about that. Really good events. What they can do is pull your heart away from rejoicing in Christ to rejoicing in them. I mean, they bring delight. Good events. The delight feels good. The delight is addictive. Uh, good events cry out for more and more attention. We, we crave more of that adrenaline pumping excitement that pleasurable things bring pleasurable events can make make christ seem distant more irrelevant boring as as good events suck more and more of our devotion an idolatrous devotion into themselves I pray that doesn't gradually happen to your heart during these strange routines of this pandemic. You are what you love. And you discover what you love, not by the worship songs that you sing or by raising your hands, but by the things and pursuits that bring you the most joy. None of the words of this text ring true or make any sense if that core fact is forgotten. Good events become idolatrous events. But I said there were two kinds of events. Bad things happen. Especially really bad things. And, and they can have an effect on your relationship with Christ because they can empty the life of all hope and joy. The despair that they produce can cause life to feel dark and empty. Sometimes the losses can seem all engulfing. Hopelessness can look permanent, almost eternal. And, and the key point here is really, really deep tragedy claims the same undivided devotion from our hearts as really great pleasure. Either way, Christ gets crowded out. Everything we have in Christ is clouded over, shut out of our senses. By stunning beauty and greatness or by the shock of deep loss and grief, either one. So now, you see, now we're in a better position to see the keen-edged relevance of the rest of this text. This is why, this is why Paul describes rejoicing in the Lord as, verse 7, as somehow guarding our own hearts. It's not for the Lord. It's for the guarding of our own hearts. Only true delight is. In the Lord alone can guard, secure, stabilize the Christian mind. Joy in the Lord is the ballast that keeps the heart from capsizing, either by delighting pleasure or hopeless pain. This, in the face of a thousand goofy interpretations... This is what those frequently misquoted words from Nehemiah mean, where the joy of the Lord is your, say, the last part, strength. This has nothing to do with putting on a happy face, waving your arms and dancing a jig. These words are a reminder and a summons to find, always find your deepest joy in the Lord. They're a reminder to treat nothing else as substantial and driving but your relationship with Christ. And those words from Nehemiah, they reinforce the very same truth as Paul. Joy in the Lord alone is the strong foundation. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 7, this will guard your hearts and minds. Same idea. The way I tried to say it in the title of this teaching is, great joy shuts out smaller grief. It's true, but probably what I should have said is, great joy shuts out smaller grief and smaller joy. (laughs) That's what I should have said. Think about it. As for great joy shutting out smaller joys, or great joy shutting out small temporary grief, if you just discovered you have won $10 million, you won't as desperately mourn the fact that you lost an earring. I mean, the loss of the earring is counterweighted, right? By that glorious news of finding a million dollars. But really great joy also regulates smaller joys as well. Suppose you knew you only had three months to live. I mean, only three months to live, not a day longer. The diagnosis wasn't just a possibility It was certain. And then the most wonderful thing in all the world happens. You're prayed for and you're healed. Not just kind of healed. I mean, really, totally, completely healed. You're good to go for another 40 years. It's the best news you've ever heard. Now, how much does that thrill increase just because you found that lost earring? Not very much. Doesn't make much difference to you at all. Truly great joy shuts out smaller grief and it shuts out smaller joys. That's the idea that lies behind Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord and to do it always. Because all sorts of circumstances will come, both delightful and distressing. And they're bent on, they're bent on shifting your heart from rejoicing in the Lord. They will all try, good events and bad, to push the joy of the Lord into the background. And Paul says, don't you be moved from it. Because, seven, this is what guards your life in Christ Jesus. This is what protects everything important about your soul. Don't leave your heart unprotected. Keep Christ as your only extreme joy. That's how you guard your heart. Point number two. We're way over half done. Don't panic. Your heart's delight in the Lord must be observable if the gospel is to be believable. Do you see it in that fifth verse? It's interesting, isn't it? Let your here's the word reasonableness. Let it be there. Let it be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. As I studied this, you can check it out for yourself. If you look at the uh, different translations, you'll find that there aren't two that have the same English word for this word, reasonableness. NIV, gentleness. King James, moderation. NASB, gentle spirit a host of others. And and the reason, the reason for the variety is is pretty simple. There's, there's There's no single English word in our language for the Greek word epiakasi. But its root has to do with appropriateness. Paul is talking about having my joy so rooted in the Lord that that there is never anything extreme or excessive in my reaction to whatever circumstances come my way, good or bad. I'm not idolatrous with pleasures, and I'm not hopeless with despair. Appropriate when my joy is in the Lord. Moderation is another word, meaning I'm, I'm careful, I'm careful not to give the impression that any event in my life, good or bad, is so important that I I give other people the impression that my life is ruled by something other than Christ. Let everyone see, known to everyone. Let everyone see, Paul says, that your life is your life is supremely grounded and satisfied in Christ, no matter what you're facing and what you go through. Let people see that. Let everyone know it. It's actually the same idea Paul advanced quite a bit earlier in Philippians two, fourteen and fifteen, where he said, uh, Do all things without grumbling. There's a good isn't that a good COVID verse? or this questioning grumbling that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Okay. But notice in the midst, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, you stand out as lights in the world. Do everything without grumbling. Do it in all kinds of circumstances, including including trials, including the persecution. In this case, the persecution that these Christians were facing. The watching world is supposed to see that your treasure isn't here on earth. People, Paul says, should see their lives shine with a light that those in the world don't possess. They get knocked off stride, they go crazy for different pleasures. They're hopeless. They have no future when trial and difficulty comes. Let your, let your light shine there. Let everyone see. Isn't it interesting that fourth verse where it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone? Let your reasonableness. That's the ESV. So he means reasonableness means let everyone see that you do not overrate pleasures. That's really important. Let everyone see that you don't overrate pleasures. Let everyone see that you don't insist on your own way. And let everyone see that you never lose everything when you have Christ. Make sure that's a reasonable testimony that everybody sees. James actually penned pretty similar words. James 5, 7 and 8. Again, persecuted Christians and James. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart. Paul talked about guarding your hearts. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Leads us into the last point, point number three. Keep your soul thankful in all things by reminding yourself of the Lord's soon return. It was in that James text, but it's here as well in our, in our Philippians text. Philippians 4, the last part of 5 through 7. Here's how it starts. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Usually the Bible treats those almost the same thing in Christ Jesus. So the more apparently the Lord is at hand, that's how he starts. The more I envision the nearness of the coming of the Lord, the more I see him as being at hand, right there in that fifth verse. The more I do that consciously, well, the more I will refuse to yield my heart to the control of circumstances, pleasurable or painful. In James' word, I will establish my hearts. Paul's words guard my hearts by looking through the circumstances, tracing all circumstances to their ultimate end in the coming of Jesus. I think what Paul means is that all events in my life, good events, great events, and tragic events, all events in my life and yours as we follow Christ are relativized by the greatest event of all, the coming of Jesus. It's like, you know, you can handle the ugly weather and the snow if you know you're you're leaving for phoenix tomorrow only we have a better hope we have this hope the lord is at hand that is it's to live constantly in our hearts i'm constantly thankful for the lord's coming that's what he says i'm constantly thinking about the lord's coming This guards my heart because in the light of the nearness of the Lord's coming, the circumstances that seem so wonderful are just temporary. And the circumstances that seem terrible are never so terrible that they remove my hope in Christ. This is the importance of thankfully remembering the Lord in all things do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. I, I, I take that to mean the way to not be anxious, right there. You can't just go up to someone and say, Don't worry. Like that doesn't work. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be thankfully, thoughtfully prayerfully thinking about everything, framing everything about my life, good events and bad, guarding my heart by measuring them against the coming of Jesus. No great events are that great. No terrible events crush that hope. Guard your heart and mind with that, Paul says. Let your contentment in him moderate everything else great and disastrous about your circumstances. And that's how lives will be guarded. This is life in Christ at its safest and at its most joyful. And everyone said, say it loud enough that they can hear you on the live stream. I like that. Thank you, Lord, for your word your good word. It means everything to us. Oh, how we underestimate what we have in Christ Jesus. And as we get ready now to watch this world impact video with our friend Murray, again, the the nearness of Christ and the new light that that shines on all the events of our lives. I pray for people who are who are discouraged maybe people who have lost work people who are depressed people who are weary I pray Lord Jesus that that the Lord being at hand that has not been shaken by the pandemic Jesus is coming I pray for other people who Totally different circumstances are on the borderline of being distracted by great things. That they never become idolatrous because they're insignificant in comparison with rejoicing in the Lord all the time. So settle and establish your word in all of our hearts. We need your word. We need your word. We need your spirit to enliven it to our understanding, our taste buds.